Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Josh Martin. Josh, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Josh. How are you? Glad to have you here. This is actually, I think, the first time I'm recording here since the pandemic started. I used to do a lot more recordings here. And all right, I want to start by describing your Wikipedia and a few things from your page so people know who you are. You are an American football outside linebacker. Currently, well, it says they're currently free agent that you played with the Kansas City Chiefs in 2013. You've been a member of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the New York Jets, the New Orleans Saints. Not there, but I know is you played at Columbia where I went. And I know that at Columbia, you were number 95. At the Jets, you were 95. Were you always 95? I've been 95 most of my football career since college. Cool. And because I think your webpage is Josh Martin 95. Is that what it is? Yeah. You weren't born in 1995. <laughs> and now I want to talk to you about football because teamwork, leadership, coaching, these are very big things on this podcast and for me. But I want to jump ahead. So, well, okay. From your page, I'm going to read a quote from you. Despite the fact that I'd spent more time carrying a trombone than football, I wanted in. It turns out that when you're known for giving your best, people want you on their team. Football was originally a way for me to make friends before classes started, but it quickly turned into something bigger. I not only found community and belonging, but I also discovered the power of teamwork. But then that's so you in high school. So there's lots of things that you were doing, music, sports. Then you we'll probably get the story of how you ended up at Columbia and why you chose it there. But you said, when I arrived at Columbia, I faced a new reality. I struggled to live up to expectations, both self-imposed and otherwise. My grades slipped, and so did my sense of purpose. I was lost, stranded even. I think only someone very successful can talk about these things casually like that, because it sounds like, well, I define myself by my achievements. Without them, I didn't know who I was, and football quickly became my only option, my safe haven, which sounds like you settled for it, and yet next thing you're in the NFL, so which many people would consider, I think, a pinnacle of life. Mm -hmm. And... Before exploring those ups and downs, I want to prepare listeners for what's to come, which is now the, the top of your page. It says, I'm here to empower, equip, and engage fellow aspiring change makers to invest in themselves and their communities. And another point you said, we need to have conversations that matter. One nation indivisible. Do we really believe that? And that tells me you've come a long way since football. And you have, to get to the NFL tells me you had to work long and hard, have a vision develop yourself, find lots of sources of support. And now to do something, I'll ask you to explain what you're doing now, but I'm seeing that you're taking all of that and applying it in a new area or many multiple new areas. And uh, okay, so I hope the listeners have a picture of you. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious to start with football, if that's okay with you. And how you, what you were saying was things were really tough. Like you were successful in high school at football, then Football was a saving grace for you in college, but you had some serious ups and downs, and yet you came out at the top. Yeah, so this goes back to childhood even before high school. I'm the oldest of six. Both of my parents were school teachers, so academics were a strong focus and a major priority throughout my upbringing. So school was everything. School came before extracurriculars and sports and music. But by the time I got to middle school, high school, I was really interested in playing musical instruments. So I, I played the alto saxophone, trombone, tuba. I was in uh, theater and, and these kind of creative arts were my main extracurriculars. And I played some sports too. But by the time I got to high school, I was in a place where one, my family had just moved. And that was the main reason for my desire to want to make new friends. I needed to. And football was a means to do that. And that's been a trend throughout my life. As much as I've enjoyed playing football, it, it began as a means to an end. And it really ended as a means to an end. Were you good from the start or were you? did you have to develop into it? No, I, I was awful. I was a terrible football player. I, was, I tell people this all the time. I wasn't the most athletic football player on my high school team. Probably any year that I played high school football. But the one thing that I was good at was working and working hard and pushing my body to the limits. And, and it's really a mental thing being able to push yourself in that way. But for me, it was always about giving my best because I didn't want to let my teammates down because my teammates, those are some of the closest relationships that I had. And they're some of my best friends. And for me, that's what it was all about. I worked hard to ensure that I can be a good teammate of a friend. 
did the team player aspect did that start immediately or did that was it a need because you were you just come to a new place or cuz I played ultimate frisbee a team sport and I was not a I think looking back, I was not a really good team player. And then when I went to business school and played a little bit much older, I was a much better player for the team skills that I'd learned. And I, I think some people must have gotten them earlier. Did Were you a team player right from the start? And was it? Well, so this is important. The detail that I mentioned before, I'm the oldest of six. Uh, so I have five younger siblings. And for me growing up, honestly, my siblings were some of my best friends. My two younger brothers probably more than my sisters. I was closer to and closer to, but I always had my own team in a way just growing up with my younger siblings. And so it was easy for me to understand how to work together towards a common cause or a common goal. Was it just then, so if you're the oldest, was it just teamwork or was it also leadership? Well, definitely leadership. When you're asked to babysit or watch the kids for a minute while your parents go to the grocery store or you're playing and you're coordinating a pickup basketball game or a game of 21 at the local park with your siblings. As the oldest, you, everyone looks up to you to make those decisions. What game are we playing? Was, did I tag them or did I not? Is he in or is he out? And I think being the oldest definitely set me up to understand and to, you know, what it meant to be a leader, if that means anything when you're eight, nine, 10 years old. All right. So in high school, you've got some leadership skills, you've got some teammate skills and you're not the most athletic at the beginning. Did you get good by... You told me earlier you were recruited by or you are considering Wyoming. You ended up at Columbia. You were good. Yeah. So I worked my way to being good. Even when I left Columbia, I wasn't the most athletic on my... Or left my high school. I wasn't the most athletic. For me, it was just... I just put in the work. Some people are given the gift of athleticism. For me, it was something I really had to tease out through the training and preparation that I put in off of the field. I feel like that's, uh, I'm going to sound jaded here. America doesn't seem into that these days, like working hard to get results, even when you're not getting paid for it. Were you different from the people around you? or you... No, I think for me, it was, this probably, there's no right or wrong. and But for me, it was a fear of, not continuing the trend of success that I had established in my life. In my eyes, being a good student, being a good son, being a good older brother, getting good grades, being a high performer. And so at that point in college, I guess, uh, was really when I started and began to struggle. It's like, wow, I'm at this incredible institution at Columbia, all these incredible smart people. There's a point in Columbia where I was like, wow, should I really be here? I kind of bought into the narrative of this dumb jock trope. And I could point back at all my accomplishments and achievements in the classroom and doing extracurriculars and playing the musical instruments and performing in musicals and on top of being an athlete and a full-time student at Columbia. But when I faltered in my grades and my studies, the one thing that I had to lean on where I wasn't faltering was football. So I took a little out of that cup with my studies and maybe I went to bed earlier. Maybe there's a point in time when I was at Columbia, I was like, I'm not going to I'm not going to pull an all-nighter to finish this assignment. I'm going to get my sleep so I can have a better workout mm -hmm. the next morning. How, was that the right choice? I mean, you made the NFL. Did you learn what you wanted to do at Columbia? Did, like, you got the diploma. Yeah. What did I want to learn at Columbia? Yeah. I think that's, I started off as an engineering major. Um, I was good at math and science. I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. So I tried to, I applied and got disease. I was on the mechanical engineering track my freshman, sophomore year. But then I think my pride got the best of me when I felt that I could take a course that I didn't have the prerequisites for at uh -huh. the time. And that's really what set me up for disaster academically. So I ended up not being able to really recover from that and leaving the engineering school and going to the college uh, to study anthropology. I feel like it usually goes the other way. Actually, I don't know which way it goes. So did that class, did you, you couldn't just drop it? No, I couldn't drop it because you need to have a certain amount of credits in order to maintain full-time status. So I wouldn't have been able to pick oh. up another class to replace that class. Oh, you're really stuck. Yeah, I was stuck. All right. So th it's not, I'm hearing that in the college for you was... It was a learning experience. Outside the classroom. Outside the classroom and inside the classroom. Is it a cultural shift? Were you at it was for sure. So I grew up uh, between Houston and Denver. Finished, honestly, I did most of grade school in Colorado. So being in the Midwest, I didn't even know Columbia existed. 
uh, until my senior fall after football season. At that point, I had had a good season. I figured it would be my last, so I gave it my best shot, gave it my all. Uh, and one of my teammates was getting a lot of looks from big time schools. I'm talking LSU, Big Ten schools, SEC. And so when he got looks, I'm on the same film, right? Because we're playing on the same field, on the same team. Uh, so when he wasn't interested in the school, he would say, hey, you should check out my guy, Josh. And that's how I got the opportunity to receive an offer for full ride athletic scholarship to Wyoming. And so I was actually committed to Wyoming at the time. Uh, and I, had, I was having a conversation with my uh, guidance counselor. And she mentioned that there is this Ivy League school in New York. And in my mind, I was like, this is great. Because I know I'm a good football player. I know I have the grades and the test scores to get into an elite institution. When you combine the two, you, you open a lot of doors. And uh, at that moment in time, when I heard that Columbia existed, I knew that's where I was going to go. Because I wanted to be in New York. So to answer your question, it was a big culture shock. I didn't go to a private prep school. I wasn't groomed to be this incredible student at a private elite institution. I didn't grow up from, I didn't come from an elite background very blue collar upbringing. So there was a culture shock and, and a bit of an adjustment necessary. And was it when you, by the time you finished, did you feel like you'd gotten the hang of it or did you leave and like, what was that? By the time I finished. So my senior year, I finished my senior season and in my mind, I'm thinking, Oh, okay. Like I'm hearing from NFL Scouts, prospects, agents contacted me, thinking to myself, oh, this is, this is a possibility, a real possibility. And I always knew, and I was told when you're being recruited around schools, this is a recruiting tactic. You know, if you're good enough, the NFL scouts, they'll find you. And no matter where you go, even if you go to lowly Columbia in terms of football, obviously they're doing a lot better now than when I was there. But the NFL scouts saw me and I had an opportunity to play at the next level. And so for me, when I saw that, I thought I can change the the way the story ends at Columbia and I could instead of going to Goldman Sachs, I'll go to the Kansas City Chiefs locker room and play with some of the best athletes in the world. And so I, I poured my heart and soul, everything that I had into preparing for that opportunity my spring semester, my senior year. Senioritis was an understatement for my approach to class my senior spring. And I can say that now because I have my degree and I can't take it back. But I really focused on football to the point where I actually didn't finish my degree until after my rookie year. Oh, so spring, so spring of your senior year, I was thinking, well, the season's ended, but you're the NFL, you're preparing for that. Yeah. And when you said you put your heart and soul into it, this is recalling back from what you did when you were in high school, getting into it. Like it sounds like you have something in you, the sense of. Well, I was about to say team, your, the teamwork, but you don't know who your team is going to be. Like the football team is now disbanded. Yeah. At this point, I wasn't playing football to make friends. I was playing football because I was afraid of what my other options were because I didn't have success as a student academically at Columbia to the point where I would guess that I was definitely in the second half, if not the last, the bottom 10, 25% of the class. So the listeners, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you can hear the, the smile in his voice. I, you're, actually, the, the emotional experience, I'm guessing, is you're, you're saying fear. Most people don't express that. Even if they feel it, I like to protect. Now, this is after the fact, right? This is me being able to unpack and do some self-work and therapy and really lean into that discomfort to be able to even have this conversation and talk about the reality of my struggles. That's why I bring leaders, athletes, people who have failed and gotten themselves back up again on this podcast because that's lacking. Yeah, I value, I appreciate you sharing these things and you probably had to work through a lot to get there. It's very easy to fail and then fold. It's harder to fail. It's harder to share these things. I, I think so. So can we jump to the NFL? Yeah, let's jump to the NFL. So Columbia, senior spring, I've had a lot of injuries throughout my career. Uh, and this is a funny story too. So I was having conversations with teams now at this point, late senior spring. It, the draft happened in like April. I left campus around May, but leading up to the draft, I was having conversations with position coaches and the staff of the, a couple of teams that were interested in me. It was the Houston Texans and the Kansas City Chiefs. And my senior spring or my senior season at Columbia, I was having really difficult 
I had a lot of knee pain. I had some, I had some injuries with my knees, cartilage, arthritis, the works, inflammation. So I ended up having to play that season on painkillers for each game to get through the season. And I knew that in order to make it to the NFL, I wasn't going to be able to have surgery to have it fixed before I could attempt to go to the NFL. So I was having this conversation with my linebacker coach with the Chiefs. His name was Gary Gibbs. And he asked me point blank on the phone. He's like, hey, do you think you can push through these injuries and this pain because you're not going to have an opportunity to get it fixed until you've proven yourself that you're that you can play uh, in the NFL. And I told him yes. And in my mind, I was like, I'll do whatever it takes. That was young 21-year-old Josh. But uh, I had an opportunity to go to a pro day. Maurice Wilson, the former head coach of Columbia, was an assistant at Rutgers. They had nine players drafted that year. So they had all 32 teams represented at their pro day. I had a chance to show out and show what I could do in front of them. Timed my pain pills perfectly so I could go through all the workouts and the drills without pain. Ended up having a pro day at Columbia as well. Pro day is like another, it's like an unofficial tryout uh, where they have a couple of uh, representatives from different teams. There's a couple teams present at the Columbia pro day, improved on my numbers, timed my pain pills perfectly. And then at that point, it was a waiting game to see if I would get drafted. I ended up not being drafted in the NFL draft, but I signed with the Kansas City Chiefs shortly after. So what does that mean? They had, a, they want extra players? I mean, yeah. So it means it's like at recess, right? You pick your teams. And then after everyone's done picking their teams, I was what was left among other players. And they wanted me enough to still give me an opportunity, even though I wasn't picked in the a draft formally. So I was technically undrafted. So I see someone, a man who's on the cusp several times of greatness and like almost in, but not out. Like, am I reading this right? You're, you go to Columbia, but you're, so you're Ivy League, but not quite comfortable there in the NFL. But barely. And then these injuries, but also not accepting the injury, accepting the injuries, but like playing through. And, and so I feel like, do, do I rewrite that you're on a lot of these cusps? I haven't thought of it that way, but very much inside and outside at the same time, whether it's being an athlete at Columbia or being the Columbia player in the NFL almost. But yeah, no, I think that'd be accurate. When you're playing, you had a couple of years of, Healthy play. Is that right? Yeah, healthy is relative in football. <laughs> well, isn't it in the average career three years? Yeah, I think the average career now is like three or four years. And you were five, six, seven years? Yeah, seven, seven years. So, because I'm also curious of the feeling. All of those years weren't injury free, just to uh, clarify. I had injuries throughout my entire football career. In the NFL, there's over 100% injury rate. So you're basically guaranteed to sustain an injury. This is a brutal existence. <laughs> is it fun? What's the? There's got to be a culture of playing through the pain, and it's part. Everyone knows. No one's thinking I'm going to get through this without injury. So everyone knows it's coming. It's just what time and how. One of my most memorable experiences was when I was. It was down to the last cut. This was after I left Columbia in my rookie year, trying to make the Kansas City Chiefs football team, and. The trainers, the athletic trainers, that's who helps maintain the health of the players throughout the season on a day-to-day basis. They were going around asking people essentially what doses of anti-inflammatories or medication they wanted for the season in order to be able to play through the season. And at the time, I didn't understand what it meant. But as I grew older, I understood that it's almost a necessity to play without pain, that you'd have to take some sort of medication, even if it's something as, as small as Advil, I would imagine at least a majority of players take something to get through the season. Is this a culture of, what do people think of this culture? Is it? It's not the healthiest. It's definitely toxic, but accelerated. It's a hell of an achievement to be able to push your body to do the things that they ask us to do and to be competitive and good at it. But it was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> the playing? Okay. Is the peak of for a linebacker, you got a couple sacks in there. Yeah, I got a couple sacks. And I, I'm feeling like open field tackle, sacks, these are probably highlights, especially if the team depends on it, if, it, if it's a clutch play. Yeah, so the biggest stat for my position is sacks. I had maybe two sacks my entire career, two and a half sacks. For record, my brother is also on the NFL, and I think he has 10 or 12, and he's been in, you know, he just finished his fourth year, so he's already more than quadrupled my sacks in his career uh, so far. 
So I wasn't the most successful at sacking the quarterback. I, I made my way by playing special teams and being more of a role player, even though I did eventually become a starter while I was with the Jets. But it, it is really fun to make a tackle or to make an, a big play knowing that, hey, this needs to happen in order for us to have a chance to win. I, I want to go into this more because I think most people don't have this experience, such as myself, <laughs> is you're someone's trying to keep you from getting to the quarterback. You want to get to the quarterback. The quarterback doesn't want to get gotten. He can throw it at any time. And so you're full of, okay, the ball gets snapped. Just before it's snapped, how do you feel? And what's the experience like? I mean, it's probably like three seconds from the snap until he goes down, until you, until you knock him down? On average, if not less time, three seconds, I think, would be a longer play in the NFL. So a couple seconds. Can you walk us through? Yeah, so all of your preparation really takes place before the snap. And you could even include the work that you do on the off season. But everything that happens before the snap determines what you do after the ball is snapped. So based off of the offenses, because I play defense, based off of the alignment of the offensive players, their positioning on the field, I have an idea of what play they're going to run. First, whether or not it's run or pass, and then where the ball is going once I can determine whether or not it's going to be on the pass, on or pass before the snap, if I have those indicators visible to me. Uh, so after the ball is snapped, based off of my pre-snap reads, I have an inkling of what's going to happen. Uh, the best players are able to anticipate the play. That's why you see when these big plays happen and they seem like they're unblocked. It's, it's likely that they were just good students of the game and had a good understanding of what the offense was trying to do on that particular play. So this is like when they, they put chess boards in front of non-chess players and they can't really tell what's – like, and they say reconstruct it and they can't. And they put it in front of a, a grandmaster and they're like, give them a second to look at the chess board and they can remember. But if you put the chess, board, chess pieces in random position that a game wouldn't actually be in, they can't do it because it doesn't fit the pattern. So when I watch football, I'm just thinking they're in three-point stance and they're just like, I'm going to try to get the quarterback. But while you're – while they're – just before it snapped, are you looking around all over the place? You're looking around all over the place. You're looking around to see who went off the field, who came on the field, where do they go when they break the huddle, what their alignment is, the spacing between the players, how far off the ball or on the ball they are as an offensive lineman or a running back or a tight end. Are they? Where are they looking before the play? Where's the quarterback looking? What words uh, is he using before the play? All of those things are indicators that allow you to assess what's going to happen. So there's 22 guys looking at 22 other guys. Sorry. Yeah, 22 guys looking at, at 21 other guys. Not to mention people on the sidelines like the coaches and so forth. This is seriously intense. This is like uh, – there's a lot going on. And plus, you're not even mentioning that you're trying to imply that you're going to go left when you're actually going to go right or something like that. Yeah. So you're also understanding that uh, they might be showing you something that they want to show you to get you to think that they might be doing something that they're not actually going to do while you're doing the same thing. This is seriously intense. Do most people get this? I've never had this spelled out to me so clearly. It makes sense. Yeah. All the best players are typically the smartest players when it comes to football. The people that have the most success typically have the best understanding of the game. And it's more complicated than it may seem. You hear the grunts and the hits and you see the end result, but the preparation and kind of the thought process that's necessary to perform at that high level, at that speed and intensity repeatedly throughout the course of a game requires a special type of person. So what's it like when you're talking to your team? You're also looking at your teammates. Like, are they going to back me up? And if I, yeah, I didn't even talk about the communication with your teammates. You're getting a play call, right? Which it tells you what to do in different circumstances. And so you're also evaluating, all right, I have this responsibility based off of this play call and this responsibility changes based off of what happens in front of me and what the offense does. And when you say it's the smartest players, I'm thinking it's not just – this is not like smartest, like highest SAT scores, which is one type of intelligence, but it's a different – how would you characterize this intelligence? It's, it's the ability to process lots of information very quickly. So you know how some people say I'm, – I'm not equating football players to computers, but some people say I'm in this coding course right now. So this is – my instructor always says computers are dumb. But we use computers to do all of these incredible complex calculations that we wouldn't be able to do in the same amount of time. 
I would compare a football player. I wouldn't call a football player dumb, but I would say that they are very smart. You need to be very smart, depending on the position, in order to be able to remember and make these calculations before the play, during the course of a play. Split-second calculations that will resort a result, one, in you being able to not be injured during the play, but also accomplish your responsibility based off of the play call that was given by the coaches. All right. So all this is before the snap. Is all the preparation leading up to you having a team behind you, another team in front of you. There's all these feints and signals that you're reading and, and interpreting. The ball gets snapped. Now all that's behind you because we got two seconds and some guy's trying to stop you. Do you go around him? Do you go through him? Do you go over him? That preparation. So I have an idea of what he's going to do ideally before he snaps the ball. So I'm in my head, I'm planning what I'm going to do. So we have certain techniques uh, for different types of plays. For a pass play, if he's giving me a certain set, I have an idea of down to the amount of steps I take, where I place my hands or don't place my hands or where he's going to place his hands or not going to place his hands. And I respond accordingly. Everything in football, especially as a defensive player, is so responsive, you don't really have time to think in the traditional sense. Oh, I wonder what he's going to do here. You just have to act and make the best decision based off of what you're presented and what you've prepared to do uh, beforehand. Okay, so you're saying you just have to act, but I'm thinking you're still thinking. I mean, you're still observe. I guess you're mainly focused on the guy and the guy in front of you and the guy with the football. Yeah, it's, it's more like a checklist. So if he does this, I do this. If he does that, I do this. All while I'm working to accomplish my responsibility, which on a pass play would be to get to the quarterback. Okay, so now you get past. Now there's nothing between you and the quarterback. And now it's a dead on sprint before you can get rid of the ball, or oh, he's moving around. He's moving around, so you you change your rush, your pass rush. That's what it's called when you're getting after trying to tackle the quarterback. You change your approach based off of what he's doing in the pocket. You have to keep eyes on him because at the end of the day, that's what you're trying to tackle. And more, more often than not, the ball is already gone by the time you get there. And if it's not, you take a very measured, that's probably the wrong word. You're getting there. You're hauling ass to the quarterback at the appropriate speed, right? Because these guys, they're not trying to get tackled. So they can dip and dodge and duck out of the way to prevent them from being tackled. And, that, uh, you know, quarterbacks are more athletic than they've ever been. So it's, I have two and a half sacks. So I can't say I've been there that often. <laughs> now, let the record show there is, I found a video online of Columbia playing Cornell in which you got three sacks. So, and you're like lifting the guy off the field, both feet off the ground. So you've had sacks in your career. I've had sacks in my career. Yeah. And I'm guessing there's a big rush of feeling like, got it. There's a huge, there's a huge rush of feeling. When you get to the quarterback, especially because quarterbacks have such a large impact on the game. It's like cutting the head off of your opponent. But if you're able to affect the quarterback, you can really change the outcome of the game. In that particular game, I was able to get to the quarterback a number of times to the point where they had to pull him from the game, which is the ultimate goal is to be able to impact the game in that way to where the quarterback can no longer play within the rules, of course. Yeah, you don't want him injured. You just want him out of the game. It's a fine line, injured and out of the game. Typically, he's not in the game if he's not injured. Or he's, yes. You don't want him to have a concussion. I don't, I'm not trying to give anyone a concussion. I've had concussions. It's a part of the game. It happens. I can't say I've ever intentionally tried to concuss someone, but it happens. It's a, it's a violent sport. It's yeah. not a kid's game. All right, so now you've tackled him. And now you're going back to the huddle or you're going back. You've tackled them. All your teammates are coming up yeah. around you. The stadium, they're cheering your name. The loudspeaker, Josh Martin with the sack. Oh, so there is this huge rush and that you've had an impact. That's an impact play when you sack a quarterback. That's as big as it gets, right? That's almost as big as it gets. The the one thing you can do it's that's bigger is, is cause a fumble, a turnover, a touchdown. That's probably as, as big as you can get on defense is a turnover and a touchdown. A defensive scores is as much as you can do on defense. So what are some things that they say? You hear from your coaches, you hear from your team? It's, just, it's not even that they say much because you're on to the next play. Oh, man, yeah. Unless it's fourth down, yeah. Unless it's fourth down or third down or whatever, you're on to the next play. And even if it is, you're cheering, you're getting back to the sideline, then you're reviewing what happened on, on that play and the others that preceded it. And then you're making adjustments. So as exciting as it is, it happens so quickly, you're on to the next thing. It's crazy. And because you want to celebrate. 
you want to celebrate, but you also want to continue to. You want to do it again? Yeah. Well, I want to hear about that. Then I presume you guys watch the games on tape. Yeah, we, we, we watch the games. We make the corrections. So you get some more pats on the back. Hey, good job here. Hey, this play, you could have done this better. This play, that was, what is that? That's awful. That's not what we teach. That didn't happen too often. But yeah, you study the film, you correct, and it's on to the next one. I hope you don't mind. I just indulged in, I'm just, this is just fascinating to me. And I haven't heard someone talking like this. Is this something you, get, you talk about a lot? or is- No, I'm happy to talk about it. I think for me, I'm more focused on what's next. I watch the occasional football game. I don't watch nearly as much football as I did when I played when considered the film that I studied and all the meetings and things that we went through the course of the season. But I don't mind. Well, let's jump way ahead to now. And I see a couple of projects. You just came from the coding class that you talked about. Mm -hmm. That seems to be something you're really intensely getting into. You're working on some videos that you've been working on for a while. They're not out yet, but there's teasers out. And it's... I hear in your voice on those videos passion of something about America, something about separation, something about indivisibility. And, but then I'm not sure if that's connected with the coding stuff you're doing. And it feels like there's, I'm seeing a lot of passion, but I'm not seeing the direction or the vision. It seems like there's teasers out there. Yeah. So this actually started while I was still playing before I joined the Saints and then tore my shoulder that same year. I was in the NFL, obviously during Trump's presidency, and there's a lot going on. This was back when the players were, were protesting and taking a knee and Colin Kaepernick. That, that was, I was in the NFL when all that was happening, the Colin Kaepernick controversy when he was kneeling during the national anthem. And, you know, our team had this conversation and frankly, it was just kind of BS. It was something that they needed to address, but didn't really want to. Just like every other issue that we have in the country. And fast forward a couple of years later, I had some money because I got a second contract and I felt a little bit more secure to be able to take this journey, which is what this show, Making America, is about. It's, it's really just me learning about what's going on in our country surrounding issues that I was interested in personally. So things like gentrification, cannabis legalization, race, education, climate change. I put together a team and we were able to cast some local experts, community leaders in different cities across the country from New York to LA. And we stopped in these different cities and had conversations. And I just asked conversation, I asked questions about their experiences with that particular issue in their city. And I'm hearing teamwork. I'm hearing America. Are you curious? Are you wanting to change things? Are you want to? Yeah. So the goal was to change things, but in my mind, I didn't know where to start. So I figured the best thing to do would be to take a survey of sorts um, to see what was actually going on. And the idea was that I would apply the things that I learned through my experience with team sports and the understanding that you know we accomplish more together and that change is possible, especially when we have a critical mass of people willing to enact a change. So you first said it as you're traveling around to learn about these things. So you learning doesn't necessarily mean changing others. Is there... So the learning isn't... I'm learning, but I'm obviously capturing the conversation. So the idea was that, hey... Let me lead by example and shut up and just ask questions and listen to see what people have to say and make of it what I will, but essentially offer some sort of a blueprint for what others should, could potentially be doing in order to begin to create change within themselves. How's that working out? Three years later, the project's still not done. So life happens, definitely revisiting. The project. I sold the show. So we have a lot of it was resources. I poured my own personal money into it and it wasn't sustainable. So I couldn't keep pouring money into it. And I wanted to find a solution to help me finish the show without spending more money of my own personal money. So I found that a uh, pandemic happened and things slowed down. And now I'm happy to say that we are slowly getting back into it and hopefully we'll have it out sometime soon. 
And it feels like the teamwork and community, is there patriotism in it as well? Because you mentioned Trump. I don't know if that... No, I think the my mentioning of Trump was more like the controversy of everything that was going on throughout his presidency and how things just... This didn't seem right. Not that anything ever seemed right. No, he, he really went. He, yeah. So I think, uh, that, that's to me, it was, there are a lot of things to correct in our country throughout its history. But the reality is our country is our country. We're citizens of the United States. Uh, obviously not everyone, but, uh, is it easier to address these issues or to let them fester and see what they become? So let's say, I don't want to get too much into the details of what's to come, but yeah, little, so we're, I filmed in 2019. Footage is not fresh. So the idea is that we freshen up the footage. We obviously fill the gap of the last two years. We had lots of conversations about change and what's necessary to create change. We touched a lot on the American dream, what it means to be an American, even what's possible when we work together. And the idea is to make it relevant to today, given everything that's happened since 2019. There is no pandemic. There is no mass. There's no travel bans. So a lot has changed. And I think it'll be interesting to see how we're able to capture all of that. All right. So now I'm going to jump to the environment. And is the environment something that is an important issue to you? It's not important to everyone. You know what? I drive an electric car. But before I got to Columbia, I didn't really think much about it. I I spent, you know, my childhood outdoors and hiking through state parks and just out riding my bike as a kid. And you don't really think much of it. But when I showed up at Columbia, it was like the first time that I saw not recycling, but recycling on that scale where there's a recycling bin every 20, 30 meters at Columbia. Uh, So I was like, oh, they make it easy to recycle. Yeah, I care about the planet. If I can do it and it's accessible, of course, I'm going to recycle and limit my waste. And since then, I've been anal about recycling, even though I've relaxed a little bit. When you, so I take it that you, at Columbia, you didn't have to go out of your way. Are there places where you've gone out of your way? Buying an electric car sounds like that's also, they're convenient and they they have quick acceleration. So I'm not sure if that's like, are there things where you've gone out of your way to act? Maybe not out of my way as you might define out of my way. This is sound terrible. Like I, I rinse out my recycles. There's I can't think. I, I have my water bottle that I reuse. I have, a, I have a water filter. So people couldn't see this, but he just lifted up the water bottle he carried, came here. When he came in, I said, would you like some water? He says, I got mine. Yeah, you know. I, it's metal, yeah. It's metal. There's definitely more I could do. The electric car was a conscious environmental choice. It was my first electric car. It, you know, it does, yeah, drive fast and stuff. But I think he stumped me with that one. Well, when you feel... I'm reading that there's some motivation... I'm reading you want to do more than you have, and it, but it hasn't really been that important to you. That's what I'm reading. Recycling is important to me. I definitely recycle. What's the importance? When you recycle, what I just saw... I don't like waste. So I did grow up with the value instilled in me not to waste, whether it's mainly food. And so if there's something that can be reused, I have a you know loose understanding that or different of renewable versus unrenewable resources and the value recycling offers in terms of reducing carbon dioxide, your carbon footprint, things like that. When Okay. So when something's wasted, what does the environment mean to you in the sense of, I presume that it's, when you say waste, I think pollution, I think of is messing something up. What's, is it, are you trying to save something? If so, what are you trying to save? What's your vision for clean? If, if that makes sense. You know, I'm, I'm no scientist. When I think of the future and even the changes in the climate that I've observed through my lifetime, from childhood through now, you can see and feel those changes and the impact that they're having on our society and, and population. Oh, so for me, it's really, it's not a me thing as much as it is an, an us thing and others. Like, what can I do? understanding that helping others and helping our environment helps me as well, right? If the team wins, I win. Um, so I take that approach. But in terms of what does clean look like? Well, I'm thinking not just what does clean look like. I th- the way you said it, I think you're about to say, talk about the future. But I'm thinking about what you said, there are these changes that you could sense. 
and you had a childhood that you described as, I heard positive feeling. What was that? When you think of what is getting messed up, what was it like before? What's worth saving? When you think of the environment, what do you think about? I think of fresh air. I think of open landscapes. But I think top of mind is really fresh air. Is it like this fresh air of Denver? Is it um, like a particular place? I remember, I don't know how fresh the air in Denver is. I haven't been there recently since its transformation over the last decade. But I remember the first time that I went on a hike with my family in the mountains, uh, which isn't a, isn't a common thing. You don't see a lot of black people hiking in the mountains outside of Denver. Uh-huh. And I just remember like how crisp the air was. It almost hurt how, how fresh it was. Uh, and I, I was in the suburbs, so it wasn't like I lived in the city. But I just remember those experiences. And since I stopped playing, I've been hiking more outside of the city, upstate, the different Bear Mountain State Park, Catskills, that kind of stuff, Finger Lakes. And I think to myself, it's like, wow, it'd be a shame if something happened to this. So what can I do in some way to prevent something from happening to it? In my head, it's like, oh, okay, I'll recycle more. I'll get an electric car. I'll try to live as, be less polluting or more sustainable. You're the sustainability expert, man. You're putting me in a tough spot here. <laughs> well, all I'm asking now, I'm not asking, what I'm asking is the feeling. Like, I'm really curious. I'm not going to go into the depth of, of the sack that I did there, but that freshness, that cleanliness, what emotions does that make you feel or what, what do you remember now? Yeah, there's a sense of freedom. I think there's a day that goes by when I'm living in New York. Yeah, I live downtown Brooklyn and there isn't a day that goes by when I think I'm just going to fucking sell everything and move out to the wilderness and just give me a little cabin. There's a sense of peace, a sense of freedom that I feel when I'm in nature. Like I belong. There's a sense of belonging almost. Or it's like this is it just feels right. Okay. That feeling. The belonging, the feeling right, the crispness, the freedom. I invite you, this is not your option, but to think of something to do to act on those feelings. Which I'm distinguishing. I'm not saying what's going to fix the world. I'm not asking you what's the most important thing you can do or what's going to change the world. It's to do something to manifest those feelings to create them in your life with three constraints that have come up over experience of doing this podcast. You have to do it yourself. So no telling, no saying, I'm going to get someone else to do it. I'm going to organize this thing. Where other... You can do those things, but that's not what this is about. Something you do yourself, something you're not already doing, and something that has a physical component, not just reading a book or watching a documentary, but something where you make a difference so that you can say, what I did changed the world in some way that I consider positive. Big or small, that's not the point. It's just non-zero. And most people at this point are like, oh, I don't know what to do because they never thought about it. Yeah, do you have any examples? I have lots of examples, but I find that if we take a minute or two to go back and forth a couple times, mm-hmm. almost always someone says, oh, yeah, I've been meaning to do that for a while. Mm-hmm. And if I, I can never guess what those things are. So if I come up with something, then... Oh, like, oh, that I'll sounds never... good. I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. So it won't be nearly... Like one guy was like, the connections to the person are generally exact. And someone from the outside is like, I don't see how those things connect, but that's why it's best if it comes from you. And usually people at first are like struggling to figure out because they're thinking of a new area. Uh, but d- does any area come to mind or anything you might do? In regards to like protecting the environment or sustainability or... Ah, see, that's what everyone thinks. To make, to bring that freedom to your life, to bring the crispness to something about bring those things back. Uh, it could end up being something to protect the environment. That's not necessarily, and you want to have a non-zero effect, but. Uh, yeah, I don't think you'll like this answer, but I think being cooped up in the pandemic and not being able to explore and travel and see the world in the ways that I had been grown accustomed to leading up to the pandemic has definitely had an impact on my sense of freedom or belonging, not being able to, the first word that comes to mind is escape the hustle and the grind of the city and just life and trying to figure out things after football. That's the first thing that comes to mind is travel. So is there a way for you to travel, escape, 
that has a way that after you do it, you think I've improved the world in some way? I think there's power and being exposed and exposing others to different cultures, experiences, ways of living, beliefs. So I think in some ways by traveling and interacting with different cultures, doing something good for the world, bringing people closer together, even if it's myself. Okay. Common, I hear this a lot. We're not talking about improving, making people smile. One, one time someone was like, I'm going to make one person smile every day. And I was like, at the time, I was like, all right, that's affecting environment. But no, when we say environment, when I'm saying environment, the environment, bringing people together. In any case, there's lots of people around you in Brooklyn. I mean, yeah. So that's why that constraint in there of that you have to look afterward and say, I've made the environment. Okay. The environment a better place. This is a tough one. I don't want to use, I don't want to cheat and be like, oh, I can go to a farmer's market. I know we talked about that. Even though I pass through Union Square on a daily basis and it would be very easy for me to buy produce and groceries locally. Yeah, that would fit the bill. If, if you're buying fresh produce from a, far, from a local farmer, that's as in, it's a replacing packaged stuff. And it's replacing something that was grown in California and shipped across the country. That would fit the criteria. Big or small is not the issue. If that's your, if you're concerned, like that's not big enough. No, yeah, I, I think that's definitely something that's top of mind for me since you mentioned it. So it's like that's so easy. If you go through it every day, how many purchases have you made at the farmers market? I think not recently. This was pre-pandemic. I think I was walking through on a weekend and I bought a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> You're like I was. I mean, cause I used to, I'd go there and I'd buy like some bread or some cheese back when I was eating cheese. And I'd be like, ah, oh, look at me. I bought a farmer's market. It's like from the fresh loaf of bread, not from the supermarket. I'm like, it's just as processed there as any other place. Yeah, it's local, but it wasn't until I started shopping there, really shopping there that I started. I went for, at first it was like things that weren't obvious. Like when I look at the vegetables at the beginning, it was 95% unknown, 5% known, maybe 90, 10. And I was like, if someone showed me chard or spinach, I couldn't tell them apart. If someone showed me kale and collard greens, I'd be like, I don't know. They look pretty similar to me. And now when I go there and there's something I haven't seen, or most of the time there's something I haven't seen for 10 months because it's only in season. And now I look for the things I don't know because I want to like stinging nettles. What, what's that? Is that edible? Or is that poisonous? I didn't. I bought them and I didn't taste. I'll have to get them again. Anyway, so if you don't normally shop there and you were to shop there, that would fit the bill. If it's coming from a sense of that freedom or if you're just abstractly picking something that doesn't really connect with those feelings before, it probably won't get you very far. Mm -hmm. But if it is something like that, then it probably will. I, I predict that if you do it, you'll have an experience that if you share how it went, it'll be interesting. I think it makes me feel good to buy, know I was buying like fresh produce and supporting a small business. Checking those things off the list. I don't know about the sense of freedom, but a sense of doing something that can potentially make a difference. See, I'm thinking that you did put something in there about bringing cultures together and spreading things like that. People always talk about travel as a way of one of the things that they like is to explore different cuisines. And here's a question. I don't know the answer to this question. What fraction of New Yorkers do you think in the past month have eaten turnip? When was the last time we saw turnip on a menu? Turnips. Uh, when's the last time I had a turnip? I've had a turnip in the past year. Okay, past twelve months, yeah. or past past twelve past month. Easily, a uh, past not uh, not past month. I haven't seen a turnip in in a, in a few months, probably. So all these New Yorkers who want to sample all these different cuisines of the world aren't sampling the cuisine that grows right here. Mm -hmm. They say that they want to explore different cultures, but they only want to do the ones that are like with the the travel pages that show the glory pictures of. Mm -hmm. They could achieve those goals right here. They don't eat a. I put to you that if you eat, this is me, I'm now not talking to you. This is me just going off on my uh, rant. Yeah. Is that if you really want to sample stuff, 
If you really want to get local cuisine and you're not getting your own local cuisine, you don't know what you're talking about. Now everyone's flying all over the place and there's all this, everything's melding into one global cuisine. It's the opposite of creating cuisine. It's not creating, it's homogenizing everything. Whereas actually eating what's nearby. And because if you choose to do this, what you're going to get is beets, rutabagas. They have oranges? They don't have oranges, do they? Not here. <laughs> they, they have apples? They'll have apples. Oh, yeah, there's plenty of apples because those things can store for a long time. Vegetables, you're not going to get many greens right now. There might be some – that's – I got a – so we're in my kitchen. Looking in my kitchen, there's a cabbage right there. A lot of root vegetables. Yeah. So, you're going to get beets and – I love beets. Yeah, I love all that stuff. Okay. Actually, I think I beets. They'll have beets, but they won't be beet greens. The leaves won't I be think green. I, I confuse turnips with radishes, though. I had radishes, not turnips. Okay. The Oh, wait. Hold on. I got to show you. So, here's a radish. Let me get the knife. What do you think this is going to look like inside? I would have no idea except that I joined a CSA where I got all these deli- fresh. The uh, Every week, I go pick up my vegetables from a, a drop-off point from a particular farm. So, this is... That's a radish. Yeah. Would you have expected this on the inside? Do I not know what a radish is? So this is, they call them watermelon radishes. So it's bright red on the inside. And that's the one thing. It is fun to be able to see that there's not just one radish. There are different types of radishes. Yeah. There's a lot of types of radishes. Daikon radishes. Oh yeah, no. This tastes like a radish. Sometimes they can get really sweet. Also, they're kind of spicy. spicy. Yeah. yeah, and same one can be sweet one and, and spicy the other. I, I haven't been able to figure out how that happens. But is this not surprising? Yeah, I had no idea. I think that if there's enough people who don't know, we have all the farmers locally got together and said, when you sell watermelon radishes, put a thing saying they're imported from some other side of the world and put them up to like twenty dollars a pound. It would work because no one knows. Yeah, and if it, like it could be exotic, right? Yeah, you could believe that this came from the other side of the world. I didn't know about it either, except that, you know, I got delivered and I was like, it looked like a rock on the outside. Yeah. I mean, it looked kind of like a, like a potato or something. That's a lot of flavor, right? Yeah. So if you shop at the farmer's market, I I some watermelon radishes. Yeah. If you go there and just say like, give me something that I don't know what it is. See, my rule with the CSA is now I always know what I'm getting. But at the beginning, my rule is nothing goes to waste. You don't like waste. So I have to figure out like, what do I do with this? It's easy to put in salads. I can put in soups. And so this is me raving about something might come your way that you're not expecting. And uh, so I will say that as much as I grew up not being allowed to waste food, I can't say that I don't waste food today. I waste a lot of food. All right, I'm going to show you something that I shop at this co-op on what 4th Street co-op just off of Bowery. Like, I don't want to deal with Jeff Bezos. So I don't shop at Whole Foods. I don't shop at uh, Trader Joe's. It's all packaging. Too much, way too much packaging. And so the cop, when they get bruised fruit, they put it in a box and you can take it for free. So like this orange is like clearly moldy, right? Not moldy, bruised. And you couldn't sell this at a supermarket. Cut this little bit off, right? So there's like a free orange. I get all this free stuff. Like all the, most of the vinegar that's brewing, not brewing, fermenting over there. Is mostly bruised apples that I got for free. And the vinegar, t- I'll give you a little taste of the vinegar before you go out. And there's so much good stuff around. So I'm sorry if I'm going off too much. No, man. You've been talking about farmers markets. I pass farmers markets all the time. They're huge in New York City. Mm-hmm. So it's a great way, an accessible way. I guess it's not the most accessible, but relatively speaking, for, for me, yes, it's accessible. So if it's going to a farmers market, let's make it a smart goal. So specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-bound. So how many times do you go over how long of a period of time? I, over the past month, I have gone through Union Square four to five days out of every week. So you're passing through? Yeah. So since um, Actually since December, yeah. Last, yeah, last month and a half or so. All right. So if I, because I want to have you back a second time and ask what the experience was like. So how many times do you have to shop there between, and if, like, when should we talk? If you're game for it, are you game for it? Yeah, I'll do it. All right. So, when should we schedule a second conversation? How many times do we go between now and then? So that if I say, how did it go? Well, when I'm 
second conversation on the podcast. When am I speaking for your, to your? Oh yeah, so we met because he's going to speak at my leadership class at NYU. I got a lot of people doing it, so it's really exciting. Uh, yeah, that is cool, man. I think I can go. I can buy something that I will cook from the farmers market at least once a week. All right, so once a week. Now, some people forget these things. Is this achievable, realistic? Yeah, passing through the farmers market four to five days every week, I can buy one meal worth of food for sure. Okay, and and do you usually cook at home, or is that? I don't usually cook often, but I, I'm trying to cook more, so it incentivize me to cook more too. Okay. I'm asking because I want to make sure you give a good chance of success. Because sometimes people like, they're aspirational and then they start and then they come back and go, I didn't know how to do X. And I hope I'm not getting so excited that I'm like pushing into it. No, I've been wanting to save money. I, I started cooking again last week. This week I wasn't good about cooking, but I cook. I make some good, some good food sometimes. Okay. So this is, does it qualify in the, oh, I could do that? Yeah. For sure. Okay. There's wow. in my mind, I was like, oh, perfect. I've been wanting to go to this farmer's market because oh, I'm, I'm not vegan, but there's this farm that they have duck eggs, duck bacon. So I'm excited to try that out. One of my friends always posts duck eggs and duck bacon mm. with his breakfast scramble. So I want to try it out. All right. Yeah. So that's one of the first things you're going to do. I hear the duck, I've never eaten duck, but I hear it's a very rich, fatty, so it's a lot of flavor. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing. I don't know if there's – what I was going to say is if you go to the gym a lot, if you exercise a lot, then you probably need a lot of calories. Yeah. So, it fits in. Yeah. No, it works well. Okay. And it's local. <laughs> so, I'm like vegan. So, I'm like trying to <laughs> support. I, I'm not – Baby people, steps. People can eat what they want. Yeah. I eat but vegan I'm, meals sometimes. When I was a kid growing up, there was uh, – in Philadelphia, there's a, a stream that goes near my house and up – if you go up the stream – Back in the 1600s, 1700s, there were a lot of mills there, of like paper mills and, and flour mills and things like that. And there's an inn, Valley Green Inn. And Valley Green Inn, on one side, there's a stream and all the ducks are there. And when you're a kid, you feed the ducks and it's really fun. On the other side is the Valley Green Inn, which is like this nice restaurant, which serves duck. And as a kid, it's always like, no, <laughs> yeah. they're cute. Then you go to Chinatown, it's a whole other story where the ducks are all in the windows. All right, so I propose that we pick up here next time after you've done it. Is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up, or anything I didn't anything to you want to say directly to the listeners? I talked about making America. I talked about I didn't talk about my coding, really post football. Making America, I was doing stuff while I was playing football. I was educating myself in the off season, taking courses, networking, meeting people, trying different things, uh, whether it was venture capital or content creation, media production. I had a tech internship, a coding internship while I was in college. And really since football, I've spent time reconnecting with some of my passions that I put aside for football. So that's been really fun. So it, it seems like really eclectic and all over the place. Um, it's not very cohesive, but the, the one cohesion point is myself. <laughs> so Yeah, we didn't ask about the, the sacrifice to get to an elite level like that. You got to put everything into it. And the sacrifice has a funny double meaning because it means what you're not doing, but also you probably felt, felt like when I sacrifice something, choosing to, I love it. I don't feel like, oh, I'm missing out on other things. But then when you've done the thing, is that, you, did you look back and you're like, oh man. You definitely miss out on a lot of things. I think for me, I felt the need to focus on football in such a way that I wasn't really enjoying anything else. And it probably got, it definitely got to the point where I could, I was, it was just difficult to enjoy anything. And so I didn't let myself enjoy things outside of football, whether it was having a cheeseburger or a cheat meal or pizza. If I didn't feel that I was doing everything that I could to be successful as a football player, whether it was my diet, not staying up late, not going out, I did it. And I can say that. I'm definitely achieved some really cool things because of the sacrifices, but I probably would have done things a little differently. So I thought you were going to say, did you, when you stopped playing, did you say, all right, it's time to make up for lost time and eat a lot of cheeseburgers? Or? Yeah, I think there's some of that. Yeah, I, I definitely enjoy 
more food now. I, I don't have a problem staying up late and going out, having fun in the sense of socializing, going, enjoying a few drinks, not having to worry about practice or training the next day. And just a lot of people don't understand the immense stress that you can put yourself placed on you by others and that you can put on yourself. Uh, because it's, once you're in that position, there's this pressure to maintain. Getting there isn't the hard part. Staying is the hardest part. At the NFL? At the NFL. And I think at anything at a high level is the sustainability <laughs> of, of success and high performance it can, can be extremely draining. One of the things I found about sustainability, the more sustainable I go, it gets easier. You think so? That's been my, I did not expect it. That's a major driver of this podcast was that I thought when I was avoiding packaged food or avoiding flying, I thought I was taking one for the team. And at the beginning, it was. It's To me, it feels more like, have you lived abroad ever? No, I've never lived abroad. If you're in one culture and you look at another culture, it looks weird. They do all those weird things over there. And if you if I try to live there, but I try to stay remain American, it's really brutal because nothing makes sense. But if I live there long enough, then things start switching. And then I start realizing why they do this, why they do that. And then if I switch to live like that culture, then suddenly everything starts making sense. Oh, that's why they do it. That fits with this and this fits with that and all this stuff fits together. But then the American stuff looks weird. Mm-hmm. So from not sustainable looks weird. Like radishes. Why would I eat a radish when I can go to a restaurant and get a meal made for me that's bliss point and really the chef studied his whole life or her whole life to make this? Why would I get something from a farm's market? But then when I switch over, then it gets – well, I find out how we've been living for basically – all of human history up until industrial revolution or maybe agriculture. It's much more connection with people around you and around me. And we didn't evolve to live with pavement and in buildings and taking painkillers to all the time. And it's popular to think that we're on the verge of starvation all the time. But actually when we look at our gathered cultures, they're they eat a more diverse and healthy diet than we do. And well, that would make sense. We evolved not to be sick, but to be healthy. And But we've changed our world to buildings and concrete and oil spills. So when, you, when I switch back, see, it's not returning to the Stone Age and it's not returning to medieval Europe. It's, but it's living more in harmony with nature. And the more that I do it, the easier it gets. Like, I don't know if I told you... Do you know that my refrigerator is unplugged? How do you keep things cold? Yeah, so I keep some stuff on the windowsill, but that's part of why I'm fermenting all these things. And the refrigerator is a very recent invent, invention in human history, and people didn't need them before. I mean, the Wright brothers were 1903. Football goes way back before flying. Mm-hmm. and But we feel like it's necessary. It's not. None, and the more that I switch over the more that it gets easier and easier and easier. That's why I'm doing this podcast is because I thought it was the opposite. And if everyone thinks it sucks, then no one will act. And if it did suck, I would say, well, let's, we're going to go down then. If the cure is worse than the disease, I'll take the disease. But that's what I'm, I'm finding out is that not the case. That's what I'm trying to say. That's why I ask you not to try to save the world, but just do something you enjoy. I'm looking forward to trying out the farmer's market. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> uh, sorry if we derailed from you talking about coding. Uh, no, nah, I mean, it's, just, it's a skill that I've been wanting to develop, something that I did when I was in school at Columbia uh, during the summers for an internship. And I can see the value in it moving forward as technology takes over more and more of our lives. For you to be a nice skill to gain. I'm torn between... Asking if we should continue that or we're picking up there next time in, in our second conversation. I think it actually would make a good conversation for our next conversation because hopefully by then I'll have finished the course and I'll have more to talk about. Okay. So then, so we'll pick up next time about coding, about how the course went. By then, it might be, it'll be just before, just after you speaking at NYU. 
Anything else to cover this time then? No, I think we're good. Well, Josh Martin, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh, for having me. This was fun. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.